You turn to Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Once you've found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's word together. Brothers and sisters, are you ready to hear God speak to you? Here is his word. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Heavenly Father, that is your word for us this morning. It might not seem like much, Lord, but there is a lot to look at and unpack from the scripture. Lord, as we get closer to finishing out Malachi, God, may you just solidify in our minds once again in our hearts that Christ is the premier focus of Scripture, Lord, that everything in your word pertains to him. And Moses and the prophets wrote about him, and that includes Malachi. Lord, we've already seen Christ in the word mentioned explicitly. Lord, he is everywhere, God, even in this Scripture now. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, you would speak to us, that you would confront us in our sin, in our complacency, that you would help us to see what it stand, uh, means to stand in relationship to you and covenant with you through Christ's atoning sacrifice and shed blood. Lord, may we be observers of your law. May we be observers of the rule of Jesus Christ. And may we be very keenly aware of his rule over every aspect of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior for anyone in this world. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for Obedience. This is part four, subtitled, Covenant Faithfulness. God's Love for Obedience, part four, Covenant Faithfulness. Everywhere we go, we have rules to live by. We got them at home. Got them at school, got them at work, got them in the city and in our county. We have international laws as well. There's rules in sports. There's rules in gangs, believe it or not. Uh, there's rules in prison, which I hope to never find out. And codes of conduct and rules are everywhere. Certain rules are subjective. Certain rules are intended for the good of humanity and others for the good of home. What I can tell you about rules is that at some point we all hate to follow them because we don't like authority over us. Am I right? We all hate rules at some point. At my job at Avis Carso's, we got rules too. We're required to sign documents anytime new rules come out and acknowledge that we read them and we'll abide by them. We have rules about how much gas we can put in a vehicle, rules about pricing, rules about conduct and verbiage. verbiage. We got rules for dress code. There are rules for lunch breaks and documents and how to handle them, privacy rules, sales license rules, and the list goes on and on and on. Your job is probably similar to this. Rules are given to ensure that everyone has the same opportunity to succeed and make a living. What I find hilarious, though, is often that the rule breakers often complain the loudest and try to take the focus off of themselves by complaining about how unfair everything is. Maybe you know that kind of work situation. When it comes to humanity, Scripture affirms that other, uh, that other than Jesus, every human has lived a sin-filled life because they have a sinful nature. Every one of us has violated God's rules, and we have all failed to live up to the majesty, the glory, and the honor, and the likeness of God, which is the very purpose for which we were created. That's what it means to fall short of the glory of God. You were made to look like Him, and we don't do that, and that is sin. We were made to emulate God and we were commanded to do so. And we prefer as human beings to make continual attempts to secure our own sovereignty. But autonomy is nothing but a self-illusion. It is a lie for humanity because the truth of the matter is, is that we are all under the authority and the rule of God whether we acknowledge it or not. What's interesting about the account of Malachi is that we have a similar scenario. Israel is in serious violation of God's law, God's covenant that he made with Israel. We often refer to the, this law or this covenant as the Mosaic covenant or the law of Moses or sometimes even as the Mosaic law. Those are all synonyms for one and the same. 
Scripture uses phrases like the law of Moses or the book of Moses or the scroll of the law or even the law that God commanded through Moses. Those are all synonyms for each other. And there's a few other names, but they're all synonymous with laws, with decrees or statutes and ordinances, which we're going to talk briefly about today. And Israel is, has repeatedly, time and time and time again, broken the law of God and deviated from the covenant. And thus, time and time again, they suffered the discipline and the judgment of God. Time and time again, though, we see the grace of God, in which Israel is restored to God through their repentance and crying out to God for salvation and the deliverance from judgment that he's brought upon them. And they're restored only to return back to disobedience and violation of the covenant once again. And in Malachi, we find Israel complaining against God, complaining how others are being bad the whole time, but they seem to be rewarded as if God is overlooking justice and punishment. They're complaining. The whole Israel, the whole nation of Israel, has in fact betrayed God and violated his law. And they think life is unfair, that everyone around them else is wrong. But in Malachi, we have God confronting Israel in their unfaithfulness, confronting them in their sin through the prophet Malachi. All right? And he demands that they return to covenant faithfulness. Now, we're in the last few verses of Malachi, and I'd hoped to finish up Malachi today, but as it turns out, we will not. All right? So those of you that were hoping for a finish today, your hope was in vain. All right? Don't ever put your trust in man. <laughs> okay? We are in the last few verses of Malachi, and they're going to wrap up this final problem because there are six of them dealt with in Malachi. It's going to be wrapping up the final problem. But these final verses are also going to wrap up this book. And these final few verses are also going to wrap up the prophets. And these final few verses are going to also wrap up the Old Testament, in which after this there is a 400-year period of silence in which God's people and humanity hear nothing from God. And so I was hoping to breeze through these, but these are very important verses as they end the Old Covenant, or what we call the Old Testament. So, let's play catch-up in Malachi. Let's bring you up to speed. What I'm about to remind you of will help you understand and make sense of this ending of Malachi. So, while you may feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant, some of you, all right, just open wide and uh, just take it for what it is, all right? What you remember, wonderful, and if not, you can go back and listen, Okay? If you remember the early part of the Bible, God freed Israel from the slavery of the Egyptians. They were suffering. They cried out to God. He delivers them. Okay? God is now the leader of Israel, not Pharaoh anymore. God is their sovereign king. God is their savior. He saved them from this land, from this cruel taskmaster. Thus, God required them now, as their king, as their savior, he required them to live in a particular way. This particular way was called a covenant or a contract. Those are one and the same, covenant and contract. If they maintained and lived by this contract and these rules, God would bless them. And if they violated this covenant, God will punish them and he would kick them out of the land that he was going to give them. And that would indicate that they were disobeying God. And when they were in the land, it would be blessed and prosperous and the crops and the livestock would just produce abundantly and they would know that they were in obedience to the one who saved them. This covenant or contract is what we call, once again, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. God gave it to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, which is also called Mount Horeb, which is in our text today. Many hundreds of years later, though, after this covenant has been given, all right, again, which is called the Law of Moses, Israel, as we've said, has violated the covenant again. They were unfaithful to God. And God allowed the Babylonians to destroy Israel, what remained of them, the southern kingdom, because the northern kingdom was annihilated by the uh, Assyrians. All that's left is the southern kingdom. They're in disobedience to God. He permits the Babylonians to destroy them and take them captive for 70 years 
which is where you find like things like the prophet Daniel when he's under Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, was sacked. The temple was destroyed and the Israelites were carried off into captivity, exiled from their homeland, removed from their homeland. This 70-year period of punishment is now over. The Persians are the world power, and they permit Israel to be deported back to their homeland, to return to their homeland, and the exile is no more. And they return in a few different stages, but that's not the point of today's text. But they're permitted to go back, to rebuild the temple, to reinstitute their covenant living with God and live according to how God required of them, or what he required of them. And so Malachi is what we call a post-exilic writing. It's after the exile, after they've been removed from their land, and it, it's, it's uh, after the deportation back to their homeland. Malachi is this sort of book. So that's the larger context that we're talking about. They, they are freed. They are given the covenant. Eventually, they get to the point where they disobey God, taken off into captivity, uh, taken away into captivity, now allowed to return back. Big story. With this in mind, let's do a recap, a brief recap of Malachi thus far so you'll make sense of the ending. Through the prophet Malachi, God has been addressing what remains of the nation of Israel after their return home. And guess what? Like habitual sinners, they are once again violating the covenant God made with them. That's what Malachi is about. Through Malachi, God has been calling them to return to him, to turn away from the evil that they have been committing. Whether that be sinful thinking, because they had some bad ideologies, sinful sacrifices, sinful treatment of others, sinful ideologies. God's calling them to turn away from all of it and to come back to covenant faithfulness with them. And he's called them out on six issues. I'm just going to state them. And you can re-listen to them online if you want. Number one, they don't believe that God loves them. He tells them otherwise. Number two, they despise God. It's they who don't love him. And they show that they don't love God by their polluted sacrifices. Thus they show, we don't think anything of you, God. Number three, the men are breaking covenant with God by divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. Thus they are breaking covenant with each other, not just with God. Number four, the Israelites believe that that God is unjust and that he tolerates wickedness like sorcery, adultery, perjury, and oppression. Wrong thinking about God. Number five, they are robbing God of tithes and offerings that are due to the Levites for their temple service. The tithe belonged to the Lord, and they were not giving it to the Lord so that the Lord may pass it on to the Levites and do temple work that pointed to the work of Jesus Christ. And number six, our final problem, they believe that it is pointless, hang on to this one, they believe it's pointless to obey God, they believe it's pointless to remain in covenant faithfulness to Him. They are saying that there is no blessing in being committed to God. There is no blessing in obeying God. Because as they see it, evil people are blessed and escape the justice of God. So that's where we're at. We're ending this final problem, but we're also ending the whole book, the writings of the prophets and the entire Old Testament. Now what's remarkable, I'm going to backtrack to problem four for just a second, is that God makes an amazing promise in in problem four. Through Malachi, Malachi's name, Malach, means messenger or angel. Okay, You have the Malach of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, but here Malachi, his name is Malach, uh, angel or messenger. And God is saying through Malachi that God is going to send another angel or another messenger who's going to prepare the way for God to come and visit Israel and set things straight. All right? So you have the angel Malachi, the messenger Malachi, speaking of another messenger who's going to prepare the way for the Lord to come. The Lord then switches names, if you will, and he identifies himself as the angel of the covenant or the messenger of the covenant. And so Malachi the messenger speaks of a messenger who is uh, preparing the way for the Lord, who is the messenger of the covenant to come. Okay, That is who is coming. So that's really what's going on. And when we looked at problem four, we saw that Malachi was prophesying about John the Baptist, who was this 
final prophet before Christ. He was the final prophet, the messenger, and he prepared the way for who to come? For Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. God would come to his temple as he promised. Jesus Christ, then, according to scripture, is the messenger or the angel of the covenant. Jesus, who the old covenant, the Old Testament, pointed to. Jesus, who would be the first person ever to fully obey God's covenant with Israel. Jesus, who would fulfill all of the law of the old covenant, who would fulfill and obey all of its rules and statutes and ordinances, who would be a fulfillment of all of its types and its shadows and pictures of the old covenant. Jesus, who would complete it, not abolish it, but complete it and bring in the new covenant. Jesus is the angel of the covenant foretold and, or prophesied and heralded to come as John the Baptist did. And in Jesus' coming, Scripture says, that day when he comes, we saw that this day was divided into two parts, the first coming and the second coming. That's all the day of the Lord. And in his coming to earth, the first time he came to accomplish salvation for us, that happened at his first coming. And in the second coming, he is coming to judge the wicked, but to finalize our salvation as well. Now, though we're at the end of the writing of Malachi, again, it wraps up the whole writing. It closes out the sixth problem. It closes out the prophets. It closes out scripture. And then we have a 400-year period of silence from God. Okay? Again, remember, problem six has to do with the false notion that it's pointless to obey God. It's pointless to remain in covenant faithfulness to Him. The Israelites believe that obedience to God is pointless and that blessings are actually found in disobeying God. And violating covenant with him. And what God says in these final three verses serves to correct this horrifically wrong and sinful idea, just as much as it serves to correct the other five sinful problems in Malachi and these attitudes in the entire writing. And to be frank, the entire message uh, to Israel from God is a letter, is a prophecy calling them out on all their covenant unfaithfulness, all their covenant violations. And God is promising to come, to visit them, to save some people, and to judge others. And so God tells them in verse 4 of chapter 4, let's read it again. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Having heard of their deliverance from Egypt, the covenant, their disobedience, their restoration, and once again, their obedience. Can you see why this verse, uh, what it means in light of the context? They're violating God's rules, and now he calls them to come back to the covenant. So in verse 4, we see that this law of Moses, these statutes and rules, the covenant was not just for Moses, but for who? For all of, what does the text say? Israel, yes. It was given at Horeb or Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 5.2 tells us that the Lord made a covenant with Israel at Horeb. Psalm 106.19 tells us that Horeb is where the Israelites made and worshipped the golden calf. And maybe you're thinking, but, but didn't these things happen at Mount Sinai? And the answer is yes. That's because Horeb and Mount Sinai are synonymous. There's some people that would say that Horeb refers to the wilderness area around Mount Sinai. It's just the area. But really, that doesn't make any difference for our understanding and application of the text. For all intents and purposes, Horeb is the area of Mount Sinai. They are synonymous with each other. All right? We know that the Lord is referring to the same place. Just like Hesperia is still San Bernardino, right? If you're referring to San Bernardino County. Whether an event is described as happening in San Bernardino County or Hesperia. One might use the term synonymously and be 100% right and trustworthy, even if there's small distinctions to be made. So, guys, claiming that the Bible is contradictory in matters like this is just foolish. It's biased. It's outright intellectually deceptive and evil when people do things like this with God's word. It's silly matters like these that unbelievers and atheists and the supposedly wise person of this world think that God's word contains mistakes and contradictions, but it does not. Remember that. Let's get to the heart of what God is saying, though, in verse 4. He tells them to remember something. 
The word remember means to know. Remember that, okay? Don't forget that. You with me? What does remember mean? To know. All right. Don't forget it. Keep in remembrance. You have to understand, though, this is more than just a mental recalling and regurgitation of rules. Okay? A lot of us can recite things that we learn in school, but we have no application with them. They serve no purpose in our lives. So this is more about, uh, it's not just about recalling. This is recalling in order to observe and obey. Recalling in order to observe and obey. We can further piece this together because we're told that the things that they are not to forget are what? They're statutes. Statutes are ordinances or limits, prescriptions, boundaries that God has placed on them. So if they're to remember them, that means they're to live by them. Neither were they to forget the rules in God's covenant. That is the laws and the customs laid out in the covenant made at Mount Sinai or Horeb. They were to keep the whole thing. All 613 commands, laws, ordinances, rules, and descriptions. All the law given at Sinai or Horeb was given to Israel through Moses. And it functioned as one body of literature, one covenant, one contract by which they were bound to because they had formerly cried out to God for salvation and God lovingly and graciously freed them from Egyptian cruelty and their beatings and their cruel taskmaster. God liberated them and then wanted to bless them. He only asked that they not do evil. Now that seems fair to me, don't you think? You're suffering. I will free from that. Just live a righteous life that exemplifies me and emulates me. You would think, done deal. But no, like them, we too have dishonored God after salvation. We must remember that their covenant living, their covenant living is inextricably tied to the exodus from Egypt and the cruel mastery of Pharaoh that they were delivered, to, uh, delivered from. So when God calls them to remember the statutes and rules, the reason for remembering, the reason for obeying observing the law of God is because of the salvation that they received. Are you with me? Okay. God is calling them to an experiential love and a devotion to Him. To live according to it. To give God the glory He deserves and to live rightly before Him. So it's not just a call in cognitive uh, exercise. The word remember means no less than recalling something, but it is not limited to that. The full force of the word is to know and do, to observe. And you can't obey something unless you first know it. Okay? Many times, many times in Israel's history, they are found violating God's law or covenant, that, and they have become lax in it. But many times in Scripture, we see Israel and its leaders renewing their covenant to God. Let me reference a couple of them. We see at the end of Joshua, Joshua calling the people to renew their faithfulness and covenant living to God. So a renewed fervor for God is now amongst Israel. And Joshua ends really well. And, and as you're going into the next book of history and you're transitioning, you're like, yeah, judges. Judges is going to be great. They're on fire for God. But that's not what happens. We see the cycle of sin and deviation from the covenant over and over again. And God allowing Israel's enemies to overtake them and to punish them. And they cry out to God for deliverance and God rescues them. And then they do good for a little while and then they return to sin and God punishes them. And they cry out to God for salvation. And this cycle just happens over and over and over and over. And you're like... Israel, when are you going to get it? And then when you think they've got it, no, it happens again. And it just keeps cycling over and over through the whole Testament. That's what's happening. Okay? So they are called to do this. And then they're called to return. And Joshua helps them in that. Later in Scripture, we see King Josiah. King Josiah is leading Israel to renew their covenant in 2 Kings chapter 23. The Passover is restored, and this book is winding down to an end. A few chapters left in our English Bibles, and you think the book is going to end well. Yes! Things are going good, but alas, the Lord is angry with Israel for their sin, their previous sin that happened under King Manasseh. And after Josiah, three more wicked kings come, and the Lord judges the remnant of Israel through the Babylonians, and they get carried off into captivity, as we talked about. We also see in the book of Ezra, 
God leading. This is after their captivity in Babylonian and the return to the homeland. You see Ezra leading Israel and the priests and the Levites to renew their covenant with God after they come out of Babylon in Ezra chapter 10. And it looks like things are going to end well. Yet they all repent of their wickedness. They repent of their marriages to pagan and unbelieving women of other nations. Now, we didn't talk about this before, but if Ezra and Malachi, if they're contemporaries, and if they're actually addressing the same problems, because Malachi addresses marriage problems as well. But if they're addressing the same problems, and they're dealing with the same issues at the same time, then it it seems like the Old Testament is not ending well. Okay, as well, because... Here, Malachi, we see calling them to covenant faithfulness because they are not. But if they're not contemporaries, there's some debate on that. On that. If they're not contemporaries, if they're addressing separate times with all these marriages um, issues, then in both Ezra and in Malachi, Israel is being called to renew covenant with Yahweh. Continually, they had to do this because continually they broke covenant with God. And so they are being called to obey the law of God's servant Moses. You have to understand that the law was not Moses's per se. It was God's law. It was God's law given to Israel through Moses. In that sense only was it the law of Moses. It really was God's law, God's word, and thus God's covenant that he made with Israel at Horeb or Sinai. The reality is that they weren't only called to know and do the law of God themselves, but listen to this. They were called to observe the law of God In such a way that they were to pass it on to their children and their children's children. You pass it on to your kids and make sure your grandkids know about this too. In other words, listen to this. They were to be observers of the law who created observant making observers. You hear that? They were to be observers of the law who created observant making observers. In Deuteronomy 4, we find instruction to Israel to not let God's decrees and laws slip from their hearts as long as they live. Till the day they die, they were to observe it and create observant-making observers. They were instructed to teach them to their children and children's children. And they were told not to forget the day that they stood before the Lord at Horeb or Mount Sinai when they received this law. And they trembled before God and were afraid for God to talk to them. Remember when you stood before the Lord. Remember when God's covenant was made to you. Live by it and teach it to your kids or teach it to their kids and live it out. Be a disciple making disciple. Now there's one last notion that I want to tackle before we transition into some application. We see that God calls Moses his servant. Moses was God's servant. Let me touch on this idea of the servant of God In the Old Testament, in Scripture, there are quite a few people and entities that were called servants of God. Some may surprise you. These might not. Abraham was called a servant of God in Genesis 26. King David is called a servant as well in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Kings chapter 17 identifies the prophets as servants. God's prophets, they're called his servants. The prophet Isaiah is listed as a servant in Isaiah 20. These are all men that God used as faithful leaders, faithful mouthpieces, uh, megaphones, if you will, to proclaim the message that God gave them for whatever people they were addressing at that time. Preachers of God's word. This might surprise you. Scripture even calls Nebuchadnezzar a servant of the Lord in the book of Jeremiah. In that book, Israel at this time, this is before the Babylonian captivity, Right before, just right before, our Israel is once again breaking covenant with God. And he warns the Israelites that God, uh, God says he warns them that God, that he's going to use the Babylonians to punish them. But there's some rebel leaders in Judah, rebel leaders in Israel. And they take Jeremiah captive against his will and the remnant of Israel. They take them to Egypt to try and hide and escape the punishment and judgment of God. Remember how... Um, just came to mind. Remember, uh, who was it? Uh, Naomi's husband, uh, when, they, when they left uh, Israel, they took off to try to go to Moab. Remember? Because the famine was on the land in Israel. 
They, they tried to escape the judgment of God either. But guess what? They died in their apostasy and they ended up being judged by God as well. So they tried to go, these remnant, these remnant rebels, take Jeremiah and the rest of Israel to Egypt. They're trying to escape the punishment of the Lord. And the Lord says through Jeremiah in chapter 43 that the Lord is going to use Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to carry out destruction on Egypt. In other words, you can't hide, you can't run from God's judgment. There's nowhere that you can go and escape God. I don't care where you make your bed, the Lord is there. Even if it's in hell, he's there in judgment. You can't hide, you can't run from God's judgment. But in the passage, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant, even though Nebuchadnezzar is an evil guy. He's God's servant in the sense that God uses him to fulfill God's righteous purposes. Okay, So you have to understand that. In the book of Isaiah, and this is beautiful, church. In the book of Isaiah, we find four servant songs. We're going to connect this all to Moses in just a minute. But we find four servant songs. And they, they seem to refer to the nation of Israel. God's talking about Israel, his servant. In chapter 42, in chapter 49, in chapter 50, in chapter 52. You don't have to write all that down. You can go back and listen to it. I'm just spouting out some things for reference for later. But God's referring to the nation of Israel and calling them his servant. As chapter 52 winds down, and as it's transitioning into chapter 53, this servant song makes a startling change, and it makes a startling revelation. This, the, the way that the prophet is speaking about the nation of Israel, it transitions to a he, that this Israel that God has been speaking about is a singular he. And so it seems to be that this he, who is the Israel that God has been referring to, was supposed to be all that Israel was supposed to be, but that ethnic Israel failed to be. He, this he, is the faithful Israel. He is identified as one who would act wisely, the one who would be exalted high and lifted up. This he, this Israel, is the one who would be marred beyond human recognition, who would sprinkle the nations. In other words, he would purify nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of this servant. Chapter 53 describes him, this Israel, this servant, as one who would be rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as a despised one and not held in high regard, Someone who would bear the grief and the sorrows of mankind. One who would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Pierced for our sins. Crushed for our iniquities, this Israel would be. He would be chastised so as to bring us peace with God. His wounds would heal us. This servant Israel and this servant he is none other than Jesus Christ who was to come from their perspective. Brothers and sisters, it is clear from Scripture that just as Jesus is the King of all kings, and just as He is the priest of all priests, and the Lord of all lords, and the prophet of all prophets, and the sacrifice of all sacrifices, so too He is the Israel of Israel, and the servant of all servants in regards to obeying the Lord. There is no other like our Jesus Christ. And although Moses was great, Jesus was greater by infinity. What an amazing servant Jesus is. And in Malachi, Moses is called the servant of God. And I'd argue that Moses is probably the most popular figure in the Old Testament, even though King David is mentioned more. The fact that he wrote the first five books of the Bible and that the entire way of living of Israel was, and God's law was given to them through Moses. This means that the foundational scriptures that, that helped all of Israel in all of human history to understand the redemptive story of God is founded upon the first five writings of Moses. The only five writings, I should say, not first five, but the first five writings of the Old Testament scripture. Okay? But my aim, although Moses is likely the most popular person in the Old Testament, my aim is to make sure Christ is the most popular person of the Old Testament because it is he who Moses and the prophets spoke of and in doing so, they served the Lord. And that is how they served him. 
As we look in Malachi, we see that Moses is a servant of God, chosen by God, called by God for a task. Moses was there to serve God's agenda and purpose, not his own. He was called to give a message to Pharaoh. You let my people go, Pharaoh. He was called to lead God's people out of Egypt. He was summoned up to Mount Sinai to give the message of the law, the covenant of God to God's covenant people in charge uh, he charged them to lead them into the promised land, land, and yet he and that stiff-necked generation of Israelites and Moses, they failed to obtain the promised land blessing because of their sin. But Moses, he was doing God's bidding. And the message he brought to the Israelites was really God's message and God's law. Israel was privileged to love God because he saved them. Israel's privileged to try and display the glory of God by imitating Him. Israel was privileged to have this covenant that would help them and the rest of the world to know how to be reconciled to God through a priestly work, through a priestly sacrifice, through a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice. They were blessed by God and privileged by God to be a funnel, a funnel of blessing to the entire world, for all nations, all nations that were in sin and damnation. But they forsook God's law, God's word, and they repeatedly turned away and refused to observe the law of God. Malachi, God, I should say, through Malachi, calls them to stop their sin, to remember their duties to God, which came with blessings. And there is no blessing in disobeying God only curses for that disobedience and only destruction. Again, if you recall the sixth problem and last problem from Malachi, Israel was saying that there is no blessing. There is is no blessing for following God and that the arrogant and the wicked are the ones who are being blessed. And through Malachi, God is letting them know that he says, you're wrong. You're wrong, Israel. You need to observe the law that I gave through Moses. I keep my word. There is promises for obedience. Listen to my word. You are in covenant with me. Remember where you stood before me at Horeb. You're wrong. Obey it. Outside the covenant, you are damned. Inside it, you are blessed. Now, brothers and sisters, what do we do with this? This this took place 2,400 years ago, this writing. 2,450 years ago. Are we, to, are we to go back to the Mosaic law and adhere to its customs and laws and rituals? What is the application for us? Well, we need to understand that this covenant was fulfilled by Christ, as Hebrews tells us, and it is obsolete. Christ, the messenger, the angel of the covenant, wrapped it up in every way. He obeyed it completely. He fulfilled its shadows and types and religious rituals And in doing so, he closed it off and ushered in a new covenant, Scripture tells us. Okay, And that new covenant, he sealed. He made it unalterable. He ratified it with the shedding of his blood. We Christians are in the new covenant. And thus we are required to remember and to observe the covenant of Christ, which was ratified at Mount Calvary, not Mount Sinai. Just as Israel was required to obey the law of God given at Sinai. Under each covenant, old and new, there are statutes and laws and ordinances and regulations that guide our living and guide our thinking, that guide our love for God and love for others. And we are to live by them daily and to teach them to our family and to the world. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he observed the Passover feast with his disciples. And he transformed Passover into a memorial meal signifying the inauguration of the new covenant. He broke bread and told him that this represents his body which was given for him. And then he took the cup that was filled with wine and he said, This cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. Which is to say, just as bread represents my body, so the wine in this cup signifies my blood which is shed for you to make an unchanging new covenant. So that we'd be free. Not from Egypt, but from the tyranny of Satan. So that we'd be free to love God as our king. 
not in a wilderness, roaming around for 40 years, but in a new creation to come, which is foreshadowed in the promised land. We'd be free to love God. We'd be free to obey His good commands, which are there to help us love God and to love others perfectly, to be like Him, which is why we were created. Before Jesus left bodily from this earth and He ascended to heaven, He spoke in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And He told us that He had all authority. So who does He rule over? Everyone, me and you. But he's speaking to his disciples that he is the ultimate sovereign of this universe. Under his lordship, he commands his disciples to make disciples of all nations, right? Not just of Israel. And by virtue of that first command, all followers of Jesus are to be disciple-making disciples. Just as Israel was to observe the law of God and make observant making observers right that's what they were told to do so too we christians are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples that's what it means to be a follower of jesus christ that's what it means to live under the lordship of christ that's what it means to be a christian it is not just a mere knowing it is submitting to jesus christ as your lord you are not the boss anymore i am not the boss he rules your life and we break covenant with god when we don't do what our king has told us we are living in violation of that okay his law is over us his rule is over us part of that law is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples some of us need to renew that part of our covenant with christ some of you And I'm just referring in general. I don't have anybody in mind. But I just know Christians. Some of us love being discipled, but we do no discipling. Can you just let the room be quiet for a minute and let that sink in? Some of you love to be taught the words of God, but you do nothing to pass it on to anybody else. Who are you serving? Who is your Lord? Who is my Lord? Are we just trying to squeeze Jesus into our life whenever we can? Or have we oriented our life around obeying our sovereign king who has made a covenant with us? The disciples are commanded to teach new disciples from all nations. And Jesus said, teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. And one of the things he commanded was to go make disciples. You can't escape the fact that a disciple is supposed to be a disciple-making disciple. Being in covenant with Christ is a good thing. And it comes with standards and rules by which we are to live. Good rules, loving rules, beneficial rules for all humanity and for the love of God. Those who live outside of this covenant will be damned. Those inside this covenant are blessed forevermore. And you might be asking, so how do I come into covenant with Christ? I, I see how the Israelites were brought into covenant with Christ. God called them into covenant with him. He redeemed them. And so how is it that I come into covenant with Christ? Well, just as God called Israel into covenant, so Jesus calls you into covenant with him. He calls you to surrender to him as Lord, as king of your life. Again, that means you no longer call the shots. You bend to his rule and reign. That's called repentance. You order your life around him. You don't invite him into your life and then cram him into available times when it's convenient for you to serve him. That's what you don't do. Do you hear that? You you yield to him. Lord, this is all about you. Everything in my life, I will orient around you. I'm not saying, Jesus, come fill the empty parts of my life and squeeze in where, you, where I can get you squeezed in. No, I'm, you're inviting me into your realm. You reorient your whole life around obeying him. That's called repentance. Ditching bad ideas about God. Ditching sin against God. Conforming to what Jesus tells us in scripture. But repentance is just one side of the coin. You got heads and tails. How do you come into covenant with Christ? You must repent. You must trust in Jesus to save you. That's the other side. Put your faith, put your confidence, put your trust. Just like Israel called out to God for salvation, so you too call out to God for salvation through Christ, knowing that Christ was crucified on your behalf and resurrected to bring you to God. 
That's the other side of the coin that brings you into covenant with Christ. You trust Jesus to save you from damnation and God's judgment. You trust Jesus to save you from your wicked, icky desires to sin. You trust Jesus to come again and to fix this world and this planet and remove sin from it. You believe in Jesus. That's what it means to believe. You believe that he died for your sin, that he paid the penalty for your sin, that he was the perfect God-man, and that he rose on your behalf to take you from deadness to life, from wickedness to righteousness, from damnation to glory forevermore. Repent and believe. And Scripture says you will be saved, and you will be brought into Jesus' covenant. That is, this. how are you called into it? Through God's word, And through the proclamation that saints take, Christians take into the world, calling people to come into covenant with Jesus. That's how you were brought into covenant, by the proclamation, by the calling of God through his servants, through his Christians, through preachers of God's word. And you may be thinking, but what if I turn away from faithfulness and faithful living like Israel did in the Old Testament? What if I break covenant with God? The good news is that we are not in the old covenant. We are in the new covenant, not the old covenant era. God fixed a major problem with humanity. Those in the new covenant with Christ, he has promised to give us his spirit, his Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ dwelling in us. The spirit comes to live in us so that he keeps us from doing what Israel did, which was turn their backs on God and serve other gods. God living in us, though, is not the same thing as being perfect. God writes his law in the new covenant on our hearts. He writes it on our hearts so that it stays there, so that we don't let it slip from our minds. And the spirit within us continually helps us to be conformed to the law of God so that we never abandon the Lord Jesus and suffer the wrath of God. Instead, he helps us become like Christ putting off the old sinful self. The Jews in Malachi were required at that time to adhere to the old covenant laws. We are required to adhere to the new covenant laws. That doesn't mean that the old covenant or the Old Testament has no use for us, okay? but we should distinguish between fulfilling all of its commands and laws versus using it for what God intends for us to use it now. All right? It is still God's word. The Old Covenant still matters for us immensely. The Apostle Paul tells us that the law of God was there to lead us to Christ. It points the way to Jesus. All the Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets. We have no way to understand the New Testament without the Old Testament and vice versa. Some of the final prophecies that will be realized that were mentioned during the Old Covenant or Old Testament times are passed on to the New Testament and we await the fulfillment of those things, like the second coming of Christ, which is talked about in the Old Testament, the final day of judgment, the new creation. So there is much use for it in that there are many prophecies that we're still awaiting. There is much use for it, and though we don't obey all of its rituals and laws, they all pointed to Christ. And so we can help people understand the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so we use the Old Testament in the way that the New Testament apostles used it, to point to Christ, to point to hope, to point to God's love for sinners and God's judgment for those who don't want to repent. We still need it. But again, that's very different from saying that we must obey the 613 laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Now I want to reinforce this idea that we are to listen to Jesus as the lawgiver of the new covenant and what it looks like to listen to him. I don't want us to simply go away thinking, man, Israel, you should have listened to God back then and thinking, I don't got anything to do, okay? I don't want us going away thinking, Israel should have been faithful to God, but what do I do? I don't want you thinking that either. And I don't want you thinking that you got to go back to... Living the Old Testament feasts, festivals, holy days, sacrifices, tithes, temple, and priesthood. The application of this is that we New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians, must be faithfully and loving our Lord and adhering to his New Covenant laws. Let me help you to discern how to follow the law of Jesus. It's easier than you might think. Because we weren't given tablets, right? We weren't given a testimony, a covenant per se, like Israel was. But if you recall Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, 
You remember that he repeatedly referenced the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments as well, part of all that. He repeatedly appealed to the law of God and the Mosaic Covenant by saying this, you've heard it said. And they knew what he was talking about after the words came out of his mouth. And he did that five times. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. Oh, you're talking about the law of Moses. And you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Oh yeah, that's another one of those commandments. Decalogue, right? You've heard it said, you shall not fair, fair, uh, fair. You shall not swear falsely, all right? Or switch letters and say weird things. You've heard it said that you shall not swear falsely. Yeah, we've heard that too. We, we, we are familiar with God's law. You've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We remember that too. You've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this last one, God's word never said to hate your enemy. Some people in the Jewish faith have corrupted the teachings of God. But that's what they heard others saying. And so, but Jesus really is appealing back to the law or the covenant of Moses. In each case, he finishes the quote by saying, but I tell you. I'm telling you. I say to you. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you. In Matthew 5, Jesus was calling the people to remember God's law, right? But he's calling his people to remember the law of God and that there's a sense in which there's a greater standard to which they are called to live. And so he says, I'm telling you, don't commit adultery. You've heard that said, but you should not lessen your heart. Okay? You should not murder, but whoever hates his brother is in danger of hellfire. You, you, you don't hate in your heart. I'm telling you this. So you need to understand a couple things. Number one, Jesus was not negating the law of Moses. Neither was he elevating himself above it. Okay? Rather, he is equating himself with God as the divine lawgiver. Since God was the one who gave the law of Moses to Israel, it would be simple to say, don't listen to God, right? So Jesus obviously didn't do that. That's not what he's doing. Rather, he's elevating himself to the level of God by saying, I'm telling you this. And he expounds upon God's word and literally expects people to obey what he says. Jesus expects people to obey what he says. Many Christians, many non-Christians. Now, uh, let me just address something here. Because what Jesus does there is extraordinary. Many non-Christians believe that Jesus was a good person and a good moral teacher. But good people don't claim the status of God like Jesus does in Matthew 5, the way that he does. Those people that would say, you've heard God say, now I'm telling you, you should listen to me. We call those people crazy. Who are you to stand in the place of God? And Jesus was crazy unless he was God. You can't claim Jesus is a good man because good people don't claim to be your creator and maker unless they are. He's there dispensing the law of God, acting as if he is God. So Jesus was either bad or God, one or the other. You can't have both. Everyone must come to grips with who Jesus really was. He is the God-man, and he calls us to listen and to obey him. If you recall the account of the Mount Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus went up to the mountain, to meet with God the Father. On the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah appear, who are mentioned here at the end of Malachi. They talk with Jesus, and they're talking to him about his his coming departure. Jesus is going to take off. And in Greek, it means exodus. Jesus is about to have his own exodus. It's interesting that Moses had an exodus from Egypt, yeah? Yeah. It's interesting that Elijah had an exodus from this world, a dramatic one, on a chariot of fire in a whirlwind. They both had exoduses, and that's likely one reason that Moses and Elijah met with Jesus. But even more obvious is the fact that Moses represents the Jewish law, the covenant that Israel's violating. Elijah represents the Jewish prophets of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, In other words, these two men, Moses and Elijah, represented the complete word of God 
from Genesis to Malachi, the law and the prophets. During Jesus' time with them on this mountain, the voice of God the Father said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. What an amazing thing to say when the Jews had the law and the covenant of God. Right? Think about it. The law of Moses and the prophets. That's God's total word at that time. They were required, according to Malachi, to remember or observe the law of Moses. And we fast forward to the life of Jesus. And we see that God tells Peter, James, and John to listen to Jesus. In other words, your supreme devotion belongs to Jesus, which affirms that Jesus is God. Do what he says. Listen to his laws. Listen to his decrees and his ordinances. What's interesting about the law of God and the prophets of God, the Old Testament... What's interesting about the Old Testament is that Jesus said it all pointed to him. So far, we have seen in the life of Jesus that he comes on the scene. In Matthew 5, he elevates himself as the status of lawgiver, thus equating himself with God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God tells us to listen to Jesus as the supreme source of law. When Jesus departs into heaven, he commands his disciples to preach the gospel to all the nations and make disciples who will, who will obey everything he has said to obey. Brothers and sisters, that is the law of the new covenant, to listen to Jesus. And the apostle John, in his gospel, he tells us that Jesus is the word of God, the divine logos, or word, the one who was in the beginning, the one who was with God, and the one who is God, now made flesh. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh and the law of Moses, which came from God and the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. They are the word of God. They all bore witness to Jesus, who is the word of God, the divine word, who is the God man who dispenses his law for us to adhere in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, we must not forget that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant that was given than, than that which was given to the Jews. And just that the Jews were in covenant with God and required to obey the law of God given through Moses. So we too are in covenant with Jesus and required to obey the law of Jesus given to us by God himself, the God man. But this begs the question, what laws, what teachings of Jesus are we to follow? For the most part, his life and teachings are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is that all that we're obligated to? And the answer is no. There's more. Jesus, listen to this. Jesus appointed his disciples as apostles. Apostles are disciples who were trained by Christ. Not like me and you where we have not met Christ personally. Disciples trained by Christ who then witness his resurrected body. Qualification number two appointed by Jesus specifically to be a messenger and apostle, qualification number three, to speak on his behalf, and they are verified to be his messengers by signs and wonders and the ability to do miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what an apostle is, and by that definition, there are no apostles today. We have their writings, because they're speaking for Jesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have their writings, because they're mouthpieces for Jesus, and their writings reveal the law of Christ so that we have covenant rules and guidelines by which to live so that we may love God and others correctly. The New Testament or the New Covenant letters have all sorts of rules on how we're to conduct ourselves in worship, how we're to deal with sin in the church, how we're to treat others, our spouse, how kids are to obey their parents, how we're to live in relation to government and employers. These are all commands from the apostles who write as they are directed by the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit. So that's how we listen to the law of Jesus. That's how we faithfully obey the covenant of Christ that's given to us. Christ who has brought us into relationship with himself. This is the scripture, the New Testament, as is the Old Testament. And just as Israel obeyed the law of Moses and the prophets, this is how we faithfully live in God's covenant to, to, with Christ. The teachings of the apostles. And the teachings of the apostles not only included the New Testament scriptures, but the Old Testament scriptures as well. But how they observed the law changed slightly and deviated a little, quite significantly actually, because Jesus came to fulfill its pictures and its types and its shadows. And he is the reality of it. 
And so now they use it to point forward, like pictures from the past pointing forward to Jesus or pointing to how he fulfilled them rather than pointing to them to observe in complete obedience. Let me further help you now that we are in, uh, in how we are to use the old covenant without being required to obey its tedious system of 613 laws. Remember that the, the God the Father's instructions was for us to listen to Jesus. Those are Jesus' instructions before he bodily ascended to heaven. And if we listen to Jesus' teachings on earth, we'll, we'll know, listen, that he said the greatest command of all scripture, or the greatest commandment is to do what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two hang all what? The law and the prophets. What? Jesus, you're telling me that the entire Old Testament was focused on loving God properly and loving others? That every law given in there hinged upon uh, loving God and loving others? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Now, there is no more wise person that has ever lived or ever will live that is more wise than Jesus. And in his wisdom, Jesus declares that the entire Old Testament is primarily about loving God completely, perfectly, and secondarily about loving others as yourselves. That is a remarkable way of looking at Scripture, in light of the fact that many people look at Scripture and say that the Old Testament God is one of anger and wrath, and he is a monster, and I will never serve a God like that. Jesus is wiser than any person that ever opens their mouth at this point in all of human history. Many people say that the Old Testament is just a jacked up book, and Jesus says no. The entire law and prophets hang on the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, which is about loving God and loving others perfectly the reason for which you were created. It's an amazing thing. When you think about it, that's what it is. The story of creation starts with God creating us to love him fully and to have dominion in this world. And, and the way that we have dominion is not just by ruling over animals and vegetation life. The way that we have God-honoring dominion is by the way that we treat each other, our fellow man. We're to love them and to look out for them. Sin ruined that so that we neither love God or others correctly. And so God promised judgment. You don't want to do what's good and right and holy. I will damn you. But I'm going to come and visit earth. I'm going to come and visit. And I'm going to make sure that some people are saved and fixed and restored to be people who love people perfectly and who will love me perfectly. And that's what the gospel is about. God loving us and restoring us to his likeness and his perfection so that we love others and love God the way that we're supposed to. And that's why the entire Old Testament was given to us, to show us how Christ fixes this problem that we have. He cannot fix ourselves. We've broken these laws. God's judgment has come upon us, but the Savior will rescue us and fix all of this so that creation will be the way that it's supposed to be. That's what salvation entails. Redemption and restoration. It fixes our deviation from God and brings us back to loving devotion to God. In the Old Testament, we see a rescue from sinful behaviors towards God and sinful behavior toward other people, which require damnation. And so the Old Testament is a rescue story, a rescue story that shows us how God restores humans and creation. It shows us that sin does not have the final say. God does, and God will restore people to love him properly and, and who love others properly. We look forward to that day. And so the Old Testament shows us how to love God and others perfectly, how we fail at that, and how Christ will come through Israel to do that perfectly and then die and rise for us so that we can be rescued and restored to that perfect image of him. So the Old Testament is a love story. God showing us how he fixes all this with a holy love from him. I think we ought to listen to Jesus and not our own wisdom and realize that the Old Testament paints a very different picture than what non-believers, the people who hate God, have actually come to describe Scripture as. They're misinformed. They can't see it through the Christ lens because their hearts are dead. They cannot understand spiritual things. But the Lord has removed the blind from us, the veil, so that we can see clearly. And there's freedom in that. Many of the moral principles in the Old Testament seem to carry over, like lying. But that's because lying was wrong before the law was given, as was adultery, as was stealing. As a whole, the Mosaic law is complete and now fulfilled in Christ. We have a new law. We have a, a new ruler, if you will, Jesus Christ. And we live by a totally different covenant. And that's why we don't adhere to animal sacrifices. That's why we don't require circumcision and keep the Sabbath. 
and tithe and on and on and on. So as a whole, we don't adhere to the Mosaic Law, but we find its good use in that it elaborates on the work of Christ who was going to come from their perspective. And now we use it to point to show how he did come and fulfill it. And we use the prophets in a very similar way while knowing that some of the things they spoke of happened already. Some of the things they have spoken of have not yet happened and they will happen. Where the apostles enforce moral laws from the Old Covenant, we enforce those too. In other words, we use the Old Covenant as the way the apostles did, which is different than trying to obey everything in it. Brothers and sisters, we live under the New Covenant, the New Covenant law of Christ. That is our application. That is our duty. That is how we apply a passage like Malachi 4.4. We realize that outside covenant with Jesus, we are damned forever in hell. And that's how we... Uh, that, that how we come to him in covenant is by repenting and believing. Church, there's a radical final and total salvation coming that's foretold of in the old covenant. And we're going to see it fulfilled in new covenant times. It'll be finalized, not under the old covenant, but under the new. It'll be realized now, and it will be realized in the future as it's being fulfilled. For those who remain in rebellion... To Jesus, for those that do not listen to him as King and Lord, for those that do not believe his words that he is the Savior, they will be met with God's love for justice and righteousness as his wrath is poured out upon them on that final day. That is part of the point of the final few verses of Malachi, which I will say for the next sermon. For now, it is enough to know that we have some worship to give to our Lord. By worship, I mean obedience and observing of the New Testament law of Christ. We need to offer our lives as living sacrifices. Let us remember to observe the law of Christ. He has saved us. We are in union with him. So can we renew our covenant? Can we renew our commitment to our Lord this morning? And I pray that you will. That you will, like the Old Testament saints, Lord, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I will make disciples who make disciples. And I will try. Even if I fail, I will do what my Lord has called me to do. And I will love each other. And I will love God. I will love my brothers and sisters in Christ. So that the world will know that we are Christians as we sang this morning. If you are not a Christian, our plea is for you to repent and believe. To come under the Lordship of Christ. To come to Him as Savior. Believe that He died and rose again. To make you a kingdom citizen. Then be baptized. Signifying that you are a new person. Ready and willing to follow Jesus as King and Lawgiver. And as the Father says, listen to him would you do that we can't force you we only plead brothers and sisters in christ it is our obligation and privilege as we are in covenant with christ to listen to him and now we know how amen Amen. i pray that there's no confusion in what we are to do let us pray heavenly father we thank you for your son jesus christ